Deep down in the strange, lurid, murky depths of the Pacific are fantastic, horribly grotesque creatures of the sea that challenge man's courage as no earthly creatures can. fun, isn't it? Right, and you never know what's going on in the back of somebody's mind. Welcome to the Corman Catacombs. My name's Sabrina. And I'm Robin. And it is time once again for a film buff and a bimbo to rattle the skeletons in Roger Corman's cinematic closet. And today we are in for a treat, I am sure, because we are covering Monster from the Ocean Floor, released in 1954. So this one is the first one that Roger Corman got to produce himself rather than being an associate producer. Now, as far as the inspiration for it is concerned, he had read an LA Times article talking about an electrically powered one-man submersible and he thought oh that'd be fun to put that in a movie in some way and so he ended up writing an outline that was initially titled it stalked the ocean floor now he ended up hiring someone else to actually turn that outline into a full script that would be Bill Danch. And according to this, I'm quoting from Roger Corman's book, How I Made 100 Movies in Hollywood and Never Lost a Dime, directly. Quote, for almost no money and a piece of the profits. Now, given Corman's own background of getting effed over as, like, a writer, you know, like, under other circumstances, I'd consider that sus. But, you know, at least he gave... Bill Danch credit and the piece of the profits thing because it was less that oh he was this big like money guy that was like effing over a little guy and more of he was still up and coming himself because not even the director was paid for this movie initially holy shit so basically the director in question was an acting student who had also recently come into some money from selling a screenplay by the name of Wyatt Ordung but apparently he also went by Barney. He got a chance to, you know, like, bump himself up to a director status, and all it took was fronting $2,000, according to Roger Corman. What's and that? After inflation. So $2,000 in 1954, according to the internet anyway, would currently total $22,066.69. Nice. But the thing is, like, we'll get back to that $2,000 thing, but basically, like, as far as how... Roger Corman came about funding the movie. So, you know, he had some highway dragon money. He had some money from some agent and stagehand work, but he needed more. So he initially went to his parents and they were like, lol, nope, we already helped you through college. Okay, fair enough. So... So he ended up basically having to sell shares of the movie to some of his to some of his college buddies. Aww. Well, at least they were supportive. Yeah. And so then with when he teamed up with Wyatt Ordon, like I said, Ordon apparently when he had sold his own unrelated script had gotten $4,000. And so Roger Corman was like, tell you what, you put up $2,000 worth of that for the movie and you get to direct it. Like, I can't necessarily pay you, but you'll at least have a director credit and director experience. Like, this is all very, like, a lot of people just doing it for the credit, for the experience, which I mean, you know, obviously people deserve to get paid. But also credit is very important because there's plenty of people in, you know, industries today, like the gaming industry, that don't always get properly credited. Even if they get paid, credit is also an important part of that that I feel like some people overlook. Like, they need to have that 
that name in order to get the future credit. jobs in order to make more money or just you know so that people can properly appreciate who made whatever thing they already made even if they never go on to make anything else you know all right. Now, as far as that submersible was concerned, so Roger Corman was actually able to get his hands on it because what he did was he called up the place that developed it, a, a company by the name of Aerojet General. And gosh, this guy must just have a silver tongue because he's basically like, I can't pay you to rent out this submersible. What I can do is if you give me the submersible for free to use in my movie, I'll it'll give you publicity and I'll explicitly credit you guys as providing the submersible in the movie. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and if I had trying to do that, I would have gotten a big middle finger and a big fuck you. <laughs> yeah, he is, he, is doing, he is juggling so much of this based off of like goodwill and the promise that, well, this will pay out like one way or another. Either it's going to pay out in terms of you're getting a piece of the profits. It's going to pay out in terms of this is going to be a credit that you can use on your resume later. Or it's going to pay out in terms of publicity for whatever your product is. This guy's charisma must be pretty high <laughs> like on his character sheet that must be his main trait <laughs> I, I mean i guess you'd have to in order to make as many movies as he has interestingly enough he also plays a small part in the movie i'm very curious to see because i know what he looks like from interview clips but you don't know what he looks like so i'm very curious no, I don't. so i'm very curious if you're going to be able to figure out which one is him and as far as who else is in the movie, there's also Jonathan Hayes. This was his first film. Now, Jonathan Hayes, it's not a big name nowadays, but he's prominent in that he ended up becoming a frequent collaborator with Roger Corman. And in fact, he was the original Seymour in Little Shop of Horrors in the pre-musical version. Oh, no shit! Yeah, because apparently what happened was... So Barney, a.k.a. Wyatt Ordung, he was like at a gas station that he frequented and the guy pumping his gas was Jonathan Hayes. And he, and he was like, hey, if you can grow a mustache, I'll cast you in my movie as a Mexican deep sea diver. If you could grow a mustache. <laughs> oh my God. I'm pretty sure that was me before I transitioned. It was like, why can't I grow a mustache? Now I'm like, oh, thank God I, I don't grow a mustache that much. <laughs> I mean, at least you weren't pretending to be Mexican for money. Oh, uh, no! Sentences that are straight from the 50s, and can you tell this was made in the 50s? It's like, oh, grow a mustache and you can play a Mexican. <laughs> like, God damn it! But he did grow the mustache, and he got fired from the gas station. What did he get fired for? Okay, Roger Corman's book doesn't say, but I have to imagine, because of the time period, it must have violated the dress code. How dare you have lip hair? How dare you not look like a clean-shaven American? Yeah, pretty much. Like... It, it, even okay, even even the Disney parks up until like I don't remember exactly what year, but like more recent than you'd think, the Disney parks also had weird dress code stuff related to facial hair. No shit. Yeah, like it. It's weird. It's it's such a weird holdover from like the twentieth century. Oh my god, let men grow their facial hair, jeez, unless they're like. Let anybody grow their facial hair, unless there's, right. little, unless there's unless there's literal like microfauna beginning to like flourish and hop out and like bite unless people. They're in some sort of food job where like they're afraid of the hairs falling into the product. Aren't you able to wear like a little hairnet for that? Don't they make like those little mustache hairnets? Or is that something? That... Oh, that sounds adorable. I could have sworn I saw that in a movie once. Then again, that doesn't mean it's real. <laughs> I, just I saw it in a movie, movie, so it must exist. <laughs> 
Now, as far as like the budget of the movie is concerned, now Roger Corman says that it he ended up accruing, you know, from various sources, $12,000 to get this movie made. And when it came to actually getting the film developed, because, you know, this was all for just like, okay, getting, you know, writer, director, cast, crew, locations, props, all that jazz. They still had to, like, once they filmed it, had to get it developed. And so they were going to do it through a lab called Consolidated Lab, but that would have cost $5,000 of the $12,000. Oh my gosh. But again, this Corman rolled a charisma check. He made a deal with president of Consolidated Lab, Sid Solo, to basically give him a deferment. Like, you don't have to pay the 5000 for the film strips getting developed and finalized until after the movie comes out and you actually have, you know, make some money from it and throw it our way. His last name is Solo? Yes. Like Han Solo? Yes. That is awesome! <laughs> now... As far as the money is concerned, because there is like a bit of an interesting dispute, and we are going to see like another bit of conflict pop up between Wyatt, aka Barney, and Roger Corbin, specifically as regards to how much the movie costs. So there's there's a lot of varying like numbers thrown around as to how much the movie actually ultimately cost because like i said roger corman says thirteen thousand. now quoting from the movie's wikipedia page directly alan frank listed monster from the ocean floor's budget as thirty thousand dollars however corman stated that the film was made for twelve thousand dollars in cash over six days according to corman four thousand of the film's budget came from ordung three thousand five hundred from corman from the sale of the highway dragon sword to allied artists five thousand in deferment from the consolidated labs and money raised privately by selling five hundred one thousand dollars shares ordung later claimed that he hocked his life insurance and sold his apartment to raise $15,000 for the film. Corman's brother, Gene Corman, estimated the budget at $35,000. Variety said the film cost $15,000. So... There's lots of points of view on this. Yeah. And, <laughs> and again, if Ordung's That allegations, sounds like my kind of math. <laughs> right? I mean, okay, Hollywood accounting is all has always been screwy. Shady. Yeah, I mean, that's more of a thing, though, with the big studios come tax season. But, like, yeah, you know, I wasn't there. A majority of the people involved are no longer with us. So, you know, who's to say? But if Ordung's allegations are true, that would explain a, you know, some of the tension that ended up happening on set. Specifically, like, at one point, because Roger Corman, to his credit, you know, like, again, we think of him as a producer, and I'm sure he's not, you know, boots on the ground nowadays. If nothing else, because of how old he is. You know, like, when it came to the making of this film, you know, in addition to being the producer, he also basically had to be a driver and a grip. So... For all but, like, the heaviest of equipment, he was having to drive it out, load it, unload it, you know, back and forth as they were filming over those six days. Dang! To this guy's just trucking it! Literally! (laughs) To the point where even, like, the Teamsters showed up because they were like, hey, you know, like, Teamsters, drivers, you know, good mix. And Corbin's like, sorry, bro, you know, I'm doing my own driving. And the Teamster representative basically looked at the operation and was like, yeah, you seem too broke to afford our rates, but if this movie makes money, next time you gotta do a contract with us. Oh, go Teamster! Exactly. Speaking of unions, unions and movies are, you know, a subject of much discussion. Now, because Corman was the producer, you know, like, you know, he was having to directly do a lot more of, like, the, the nitty-gritty than last time with Highway Dragnet, because with Highway Dragnet, it was basically, you know, selling 
his story to allied artists, you know, and then they hired screenwriters and, you know, they did a lot of the arrangement and then he just got to be the associate producer running around, right? But this time he gets to be more authoritative. And so, like, so he had to be the one to, you know, sign with the Screen Actors Guild and the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. So this was a full union picture and that's six days, that six day schedule, which, yeah, it does seem really short, but that's actually, at least at the time, that was the minimum allowed by the International Alliance of stage employees oh my gosh that's a lot <laughs> yep <laughs> but i mean hey full union picture and he ended Yay! Up, and he ended up scouting the malibu beach and renting a beach house for the interior shots and as far as you know like some hijinks um one specific incident that Corman recalled is that so for parts where they wanted to film kind of out from the ocean they like built a little like platform for the camera and so they had to haul it to the surf so that way you know when the water would come up it's like okay we can shoot from the water now. Corman needed helping lifting it and so he's all like hey Barney help me lift this and Barney's like I'm the director I don't have to lift it. Yeah well I'm the producer and I'm lifting it so just you know help me and apparently Barney dropped it on him in the process of getting it over there. Dropping the ball! But enough talk about, you know, like, money talk and beach talk. Let's get to the poster. Yeah, show me the poster! Okay, and we'll post this on the social medias for our viewers to take a look at. But Robin, like, take a look at that. The giant eyeballed octopus-looking thing, possibly about to do unseemly things to that blonde woman in the pink one piece. Up from the forbidden depths comes a tidal wave of terror, monster from the ocean floor, with like a tiny little square in the corner for the leading lady and the leading man. Because of course you gotta accentuate those titties those nipples on the posters i i was about to say you can definitely make out like one in the center and then the other like yeah it's like very pokey boob socks <laughs> okay I don't oh know if it's artist boob. okay it's not boob socks they are not going high enough on her boobs to be boob socks touche that being said though i wish i could be that lady <laughs> okay but <laughs> well only consensually. Consensual tentacles. Conse- consentacles. <laughs> you know, this is not this is not gonna be the last time that something hentai adjacent happens in relation to a Corman movie, but I don't know how often it's gonna pop up between now and Galaxy of Terror. <laughs> but yeah, this is definitely like the kind of pulpy monster poster that we tend to think of. When we think of B-movie, I think of something like this. And I am very looking forward to watching Sexualizing a woman, a monster. monster, Awesome font. That more muted color palette. Got a sprinkling of a little alliteration with the toy wave That poster coloring with the limited colors. It pops. It pops. Her boobs are about to pop out and the colors pop. (laughs) <laughs> and, and that eyeball be popping oh he might need some visine there's some there's some goo coming out oh my gosh either, mr monster e- either that or he just smoked the the biggest blunt <laughs> that is a very red eye oh my god smoking weed with a monster like wait where does it even put does it have lips is the lips underneath it <laughs> like a like, octopus with the big beak thing like where how, does how would, a, how would a beak smoke though? You kind of need lips. 
Is it, does it just look like a butthole down there? Where? <laughs> Wait, hold up. He smokes weed through the eyeball. Oh, God, no wonder it's red. Oh, God, that would sting so bad. Oh, my gosh. Oh, God, that's why he's crying. Oh, God, now... now They're crying. Okay, <laughs> uh, now my eyes are watering. Ah! We'll be right back with our thoughts on The Monster from the Ocean Floor. So we just watched the monster from the ocean floor. <laughs> Love stories is not Roger's thing. <laughs> I mean, I don't know whether to blame it on him or blame it on the screenwriter, William Dunch, because remember Corman, he did the story, but then he had Dunch like actually turn the outline into a full screenplay. But it's the 1950s. So, you know, it's a toss up. Oh, 1950s. I oh, you know, woman, I like you. End of story. <laughs> it was, I, I, I checked the timestamp. It was like 15 minutes and 46 seconds. That's how long it took for a love declaration to be made. <laughs> but, but maybe we should, maybe we should rewind a little. All right. For what little happened prior to the love declaration. Because, spoilers... Not a lot happens in this. I mean, it's an hour, so you can't say that it outstays its welcome. True, true. So it starts off with the narrator talking about the coast. He's like, this is an uncharted territory for the white man. (laughs) Oh, God. Because this takes place in Mexico. And the lady's work is painting a landscape. And the little boy is with her. And she's like, I can't remember how this topic gets brought up. Oh, I think it's like the little boy like compliments her on her painting, which, okay, for as much as she's supposed to be a painter, we never see what the hell she's doing on her easel. No, it is like, oh, my father is a painter like you. Oh, really? What's your father doing now? He's dead. He doesn't do anything. And she just awkwardly doesn't address that at all right well i mean like and also keep in mind that this mexican kid air quotes mexican because i'm pretty sure like no mexican character in this movie is played by somebody of latinx or hispanic descent because it's just like this kid speaking like very like stilted broken english in a very hollywood way of this is how foreign kids talk yeah pretty much my father he's dead Love that awkward silence between the two of them, and then... Because, yeah, she's an American. Julie the painter is an American. And like any American tourist, she's wearing a dorky-ass hat that she probably just got from the souvenir shop. She's wearing a sombrero that's, like, kind of tilted weird. I guess not to... So as not to crumple the actress's hair too much. Right. Is my guess. Because she's, like, wearing it way too high up. It looks like it's about to fall off, in my opinion, if the wind were gustier. And, of course, it says Mexico in, like, big letters on the back at one point when she turns her head. But yeah, the little boy starts describing about how like, yeah, his dad went out to see got killed by something and there's there's a devil that's eating people. She's like, oh, don't let your imagination carry it off. So she's just like, whatever about it. So she's, she decides to go swimming in the coast and that's when she bumps into Steve Dunning. Yeah, because, Dunning. yeah, because basically there's like, a bit of a false scare because something bumps into her in the water, but it turns out it's just Steve and the submersible, the oh-so-we-must-like-you-know-get- 
uh, promotion for this submersible, which it makes the I- the Ocean Gate Titan look roomy. Because <laughs> it's like, it's only one person. It doesn't even fully, like, shelter you from the water. He still has to have the scuba gear on. So it seems like the main benefit is just that you go a little faster and it kind of gives you a shield from whatever critters may be in the water right and they said it's a manpower so there is no engine for this thing but i thought i read that it was like electric unless like he's pumping unless he's like pedaling something to help give it a go because there's a little there's a little spinner at the back that's spinning as you can tell i'm a very technical person (laughs) um the, pro- the coaxial propeller is... I only know the word coaxial because for some reason I was really into helicopters. I had a helicopter phase back in high school. Not the point. Anywho, though. But I think, yeah, he's just supposed to be moving that thing by foot. So... That just seems like... That wear you out. Right. Yeah, I did a quick Google and this aer- aeronaut general submersible, it did not seem to really take off after this movie. Aww. But yeah, like Steve and Julie have their little meet cute. He like brings the thing up on shore and climbs out and they get to talking. He explains that he's a marine biologist, Julie Blair, the main love interest. She's a merchandise illustrator. So, so basically like she had to draw all of the like appliances back in the fifties before photography stole her job. Oh no. Like, Took her job! Like, it feels like they're implying, because even she kind of knows it's not very, you know, like, glamorous that she's a merchandise illustrator. So, like, I feel like if it were a longer script, maybe you'd flesh out that, like, she actually wants to do something more, like, nature-oriented. But again, we don't even see what she's painting or drawing. Probably because they didn't have anyone on hand that could actually, like, draw it out, or they didn't want to pay anybody that could, because this is a very, like, bare-bones, you know, low-cost production. Right, and... Steve Dunning takes Julie to meet his biologist friend, Dr. Baldwin. Like, he, they, he basically is like, oh, yeah, like, let me take you to our boat. And Dr. Baldwin, they kind of, like, info dump a little bit, like, oh, yeah, we're here, like, you know, researching ocean farming, which I thought they were just, like, making up stuff, but I actually looked it up. I glanced through an article that, you know, it looks like there actually is viable research going on, even to this day, into, like, farming, not, like, you know, land plants, but more like farming things like kelp for agriculture. Oh, really? So yeah, so uh, that wasn't just some sci-fi mumbo-jumbo that they pulled out of their ass. That actually, you know, was probably based off of something that, you know, back in that day would have probably been more in its infancy. But yeah. Aww, that's awesome! So they info dump about biology and stuff when Joe, we don't really hear his name, Because I had a hard time understanding this guy when he first showed up on the scene. You mean Steve? You're mixing up your random white guy names. No. All right, Joe, the Mexican one who is played by a white man. (laughs) Because, like I said, every Mexican character in this is not played by a a Latinx or Hispanic person. I don't know. There wasn't any listing for the kid. Like, I didn't even see what is, like, on Wikipedia and IMDb, it doesn't list his character name, let alone his actor name. And then Joe is played by Jonathan Hayes and... I'll get into the other actors later for the, or the Mexican parts. So Joe shows up. Then... Yeah, he pulls up. He's a he's an abalone diver, which abalone is a kind of mollusk, like a clam or an oyster. But yeah, his abalone. I did not know that. But his abalone diving buddy, he's like, you gotta help. You gotta help. He's stuck down there. Something got him. He's missing. And 
Steve goes down in the sub, looks for him, finds the suit, but when they pull it back up onto the boat, no damage to the suit other than the porthole on the face is open. You keep in mind, this is like a very old-timey looking diving suit. It's like classic, like metal, round, bulbous head. Very Spongebob energy. I was gonna say Scooby-Doo energy. That too. But like, also, the way that Steve had to transport the suit, again, just goes to show how cramped this submersible was. Because it he couldn't even pull the suit into the chamber where he was. He has to drape it over the front of the submersible. And so there's just like this shot at one point where the submersible's going up with, with the empty suit draped over it like a laundry. Is like, like the laundry. helmet inside with him? Because otherwise, but wouldn't I think that it wasn't, just fall off? But I think it was still attached to though when he brought it up to the boat. Right. And after that... Because then, you know, they're like, well, he must have, like, gotten sucked out of the suit or whatnot. And Joe's like, how's that possible? There's no rips or tears in the suit. It's like, well, there's the little face hole. It's like, no man could get through the face hole. Well, what else do you... Yeah, they don't really explain... Well, I guess they do. They do later. That's them alluding to the fact that whatever's killing stuff is doing it in a in a very strange way. So that way, this is to exonerate the sharks and the octopi and the other critters. And this is when we hit about the fifteen minute mark when he's like, "We haven't been together long, but I've grown very fond of you." Yeah, because they basically they reconvene like back on shore, and she's all like, "Because now Julie's convinced. She's like, okay, the little kid was talking about it, and that mysterious death happened. I'm fully convinced there's a monster in the ocean." And Steve. All like, and she also mentions talking to locals about the devil in the cove. Yeah, like the only local that we see her talking to is the little boy, and then there's an old lady that she talks to later. We'll get to the old lady. But, um, right. But yeah, she's now fully convinced. She's fully bought in. And Steve's like, I don't think it's a sea monster, but still, for your safety, I've fallen in love with you in the canonical few hours that we've known each other. <laughs> And I, so I don't want anything bad happening to you. Don't take any chances, Julie. Yeah, don't go exploring. Don't go girl bossing in the ocean. So they go back to the cove and they start going on a monster hunt. Well, it's less of a monster hunt because it's more that he, he says that he needs to overhaul the submersible and she's all like, oh, come on, can't we take it for another spin, you know, before you have to do whatever tinkering and overhauling? And he's like, okay, so yeah, like, and this will just go to prove to you that there's no monsters down there. And so they go down and she goes down, of course, again, since the submersible can only fit one person, she's just got like regular scuba equipment on. And while she's down there, she encounters a giant squid. And it's not a squid, it's an octopus. A giant octopus. Blah. But yeah, she's terrified. She like swims back up and is all like, oh my God, I think I saw the monster. It's like, what was it? It was a giant octopus. It's like, octopi are the cowards of the sea, which I what? Why are we throwing shade on the octopi? Okay, I wouldn't say that, like, they're noble warriors. They're not swinging axes or anything down there, but, like... <laughs> okay, octopi are smart enough that they could fuck us up if they wanted to. It's just most of them don't. Or the ones that do fuck us up are the poisonous ones, like the blue-ringed octopus. But those don't get big. Those are tiny. But, yeah, they're just throwing weirdly specific shade onto octopi about them being yellow-bellied cowards, I guess. So that's when she goes back on to dry land. Yeah, because she's like, I don't care if the octopus, like, you know, isn't going to hurt me. It creep me out too much. Get me back. And because the other thing is because, you know, he's not concerned about the octopus. He does warn her, though, about sharks because he's like, there's there's like a man eater that wanders in now and then. So so is this also a Jaws prequel? Hey. Is this man eater? Like, just casually, it's like, yeah, there's a man eating shark in the ocean, but don't worry. But like, you know, just just keep an eye out. 
Don't scratch your leg. Right. I didn't expect the scratching the leg thing. Or it was scratching yourself. Well, because they wanted to communicate don't bleed in the water. So the idea is, I don't think they mean scratching herself like her just reaching and like getting a really like hard to reach spot in her ass crack. I think they mean like... (laughs) (laughs) They're not talking about the suit chafing in odd places. They're talking about like, hey, don't like scrape your shoulder against some coral and, you know, like bleed into the water. But she doesn't in that point encounter a shark. But that's when she she talks to Joe again. Joe is like, hey, I know a guy named Pablo. Am I pronouncing that right? It's Pablo. Pablo. P-A-B-L-O. Were you about Pablo. to say were you about to say Pueblo? I'm leaning in. I'm judging. I'm not very good with non-American names. <laughs> okay, in fairness, you're not even good with American names. That is true. I suck with American names, too. You suck so, with names all around the world. I'm an equal opportunity sucker when it comes to names. <laughs> Anywho, though. So Joe tells Julie to go find Pablo. And... and and the thing about Pablo is, so Joe's played by Jonathan Hayes, American white guy. All he had to do was grow out a mustache. The Pablo, he's played by the director. Yeah, oh, Wyatt Ordung. Now, here's the thing. Well, because, you know, like, when I just saw the name, like, I ended up having to look up, you know, like, prior to Pablo showing up, I had to look up a name as I was, like, looking up production info and stuff because I didn't, because, like, since Roger keeps calling him Barney, like, I was like, okay, I need a, to find a picture so that I'm not just imagining a purple dinosaur in my head every time that, like, a factoid about Wyatt Barney Ordung comes up. And so the good news is it's not whitewashing because he's not white. The bad news is... He's not Hispanic or Latinx. He's Chinese. He was born in Shanghai. This was his first directing gig. And then he directed one other movie in like 1956. But he primarily did like acting and writing. White people. It's like. Well, uh, well this just goes to show that you don't have to be white to do whitewash. <laughs> <laughs> in a weird way. Or it's like, it's, it's, it's like, this is like a precursor to like M. Night Shyamalan casting white people as the Inuit-coded waterbenders in Last Airbender. Oh it, it's that God. vibe. It's that vibe of like, you're doing the thing that normally like white people do, but like, I mean, in fairness to, to Barney, it was the, it, unfortunately, it was commonplace at the time, you know, and like, I'm not Asian, nor am I a Latinx, so, you know, I, I've got no skin in the game either way. Right, so, so I don't want to call him a pick-me or anything like that. I understand that, you know, like, being an Asian man in, you know, the Hollywood system in the 50s, I imagine was not an easy go Was things. not great. And so, is you know, my guess. so I'm, I'm giving, I'm gonna, you know, like as a saltine sister, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Cause again, I don't have any skin in the game either way. But if any of our listeners are Asian American or Latin American or Hispanic, you know, write us an email, cormancatacombs at gmail.com. Let us know how you feel about like that cast listing. Although to be fair to Barney, we are talking about a time period where Asian actors couldn't even be guaranteed Asian roles, you know, like just off the top of my head. Around this time, you had, like, Marlon Brando, John Wayne, and Christopher Lee all doing yellow face roles. No, not Christopher Lee! It, it was only, I think, like, once or twice for, like, Fu Manchu or something. I mean, at least he killed Nazis, so I feel like that balances it out. He gets a pass for killing Nazis. <laughs> the only good Nazi is a dead Nazi! If only more actors who did yellow face had Nazi body counts. Wait a minute. I have an idea. It's like, if Hollywood's listening, it's like, call me up. Imagine, like, a movie where it's about actors who did yellow face, 
that in order to redeem themselves, they basically like form a little inglorious bastards Charlie's Angels style team. And they, like, go to kill Nazis. Yeah! And, like, you could have it where, like, they uncover this plot. Like, the Nazis are trying to, like, put chemicals in the water to turn the frogs into Nazis. They call it Project Pepe. (laughs) What? Hollywood, I'll be waiting by the phone. When performers known for problematic portrayals must go Antifa on some amphibians, the results will be. Ribbiting. Coming to a theater nowhere near you, Yellow Bellies. This film has not yet been, nor ever will be, rated. So Pablo tells Julie that he saw a creature with a big red eye with a weird shape came out on a full moon one night. Yeah, and he's coded as kind of being the local drunk. Like, he's holding a bottle... Well, she offers, she gives him a bottle of booze in order to get him to open up. Yeah, the way that this movie portrays Mexican people is not great. There's like three primary functions that the Mexican characters serve in this movie. Expositing about the scary thing, being drunk, and then a secret third thing. That we'll get into later. later. So after Pablo... Julie goes chilling on a lawn chair when she's talking to an old lady sweeping. And at first we think she's talking about her husband, but apparently she's talking about her missing dog. Yeah, because she says, and granted, like, the sound quality of the movie is a little spotty in places. So at first, like, I couldn't tell if she was saying Alfredo or or as, as she kept saying it, it sounded more like Godfredo, which may be like a Spanish version of Godfrey. But like, I'll go with Godfredo because it just sounded like there was more enunciation that there would be for Alfredo. But yeah, like she's talking about my dear Godfredo. Oh, you know, he, he disappeared on the beach. It's like, oh, I'm so sorry about your husband. No, he's my dog. And and this is this older woman talking about her missing dog, which actually, this is the second Corman movie in a row where a dog has died. Oh my gosh. I'm very curious how many entries Roger Corman has on, on you know, doesthedogdie.com. Oh my gosh. We're gonna find out. We, we are. Maybe we need to keep a tally, a dead dog tally. Oh my god. So far, it's two. It's dos. Dos. <laughs> dos dead doggos. He's but, only made two movies and there's already been two dead dogs. Okay. Wow. I mean, it's it's an easy, like, oh, you need to show that something bad happens, but you don't have, you know, you aren't able to kill a person just yet. It's like, well, I guess he did already kill one person because we already, um, Joe's buddy, Sanchez. I, I was trying to keep track of the immemoriums. <laughs> in memoriam sanchez the one who got sucked out of the face hole and now Godfredo. face hole sanchez <laughs> face hole sanchez <laughs> but and this older woman is her name's tula she's actually played by inez palange she's an italian actress she's best known for being in the original version of scarface from the 30s no shit. Yeah, the Pacino one was a remake. Okay, I did not know that. But yeah, but so again, we've got every other ethnicity other than Latinx playing the Mexican t- characters. Oh, goodness gracious. So after that, we transition to a scene of Steve singing to Julie. And I love this part because she's like, play me another song. And he's like, and no. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, and a minute. And he just like sets the guitar aside. That being said, though, he wasn't too bad. Yeah, he was Very, 
How do you... In, put... in the long lineage of white guys with acoustic guitars... Not was, the worst. I mean, it helps that, like, he had a deep baritone. Deep, booming voice. But yeah, she's getting concerned. Mary, bless your beautiful heart. Now kind don't, energy. now don't get the copyright people after us. <laughs> but, you know, they're trying to be all romantic, even though, again, they've only known each other, like, for at most a day. But Julie starts to get concerned because she's like, oh no, full moon's out. The monster's gonna be here. And Steve is still being very incredulous. You know, he's all like, oh, pretty girls shouldn't worry about non-existent monsters. There's... But Julie starts to put two and two together because she's like, because when she was talking to Joe and when Joe had told her to go to Pablo, Joe had said that, because she asked him, like, credit where credit is due, despite in a lot of ways still being the damsel in distress, it's Julie that's doing, like, a lot of the investigative work. Into the monster. Into this monster. Like, just... Just because I guess she has nothing else to do on vacation, but... Yeah, her vacation must have been super boring for her to devote it to looking for a monster. (laughs) But it's because Joe mentions that because she's like, okay, well, when did all this monster stuff start happening? And Joe's like, around 1946. And she's like, it happened after the war. Wait a minute. What happened around then? And that's when Steve is like, well, around 1946 was the... The Bikini Atoll experiments because that happened over the course of like the late 40s into the 50s and they said that the radiation from there must could have, have like washed over because technically that was in the marshall islands which that's further into the specific pacific ocean it's a little ways from mexico but i guess they're implying that it basically like sloshed from that side of the pacific ocean to the mexican side and mutated something oh the classic stanley radiation did it <laughs> I mean, Stanley didn't invent it, but he definitely turned it to more superhero persuasions. <laughs> I was about to say, this was a big year for wet monsters. Yeah! Because, okay, so it's ni- this, is, this came out in 1954. Two other things came out in 1954. Creature from the Black Lagoon and Godzilla. No so shit! Th- this was the year of the wet monster, and two of them are radioactive. Nice! But yeah, so you know, Steve's like, oh, stop worrying about monsters, and then... Dr. Baldwin pops up to be like, oh, hey, um, we have to, like, we got reassigned or, like, we got to go do something up on a different part of the coast. And so Steve's like, oh, you know, bye for now, Julie. You know, like, we're, we're still a thing, right? Yeah, he's like, I'm falling in love with you, Julie. I've only known you just a few hours. They literally say that. I've only known you for a few hours, but I'm falling in love with you. And it's like, bitch, come on. <laughs> I'm blaming the drinks. Oh, man. All of the drinks. They must have been drinking something really stiff I mean, he to does, get into the I love you. He does mention a dry martini. <laughs> but, so Julie decides to, it's like, despite Steve's misgivings, she's going to investigate. But before she can catch a good look at the monster, she gets jump-scared by a cow. Of passes all things, out. a cow. Like, she cli- she hears a noise and she's starting to crest over the hill to see what it is. There's a cow in the shadows. And I feel like, and again, this was filmed over six days. A lot of the flaws can be chalked up to, this film was made in six days. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I'm actually kind of impressed when you put it in the... It's like, if I, I had not known that this was made in six days, I would be way more judgmental. I mean, it's definitely, like, 
we haven't gotten to the trash rating yet, but like, I mean, you know, as much as we're harping on some of these movies, I'm being more generous to them, not only because of how quickly and cheaply they were made, but also because I know that statistically there's probably much more unpleasant stuff in store for us in the future. So like, I'm... I'm trying to like, you know, go easy on things now that we're just like, where the worst, the worst aspect of any of these movies is just going to be, they were made in the fifties and it shows. Right. But I do wish that they had done the cow jump scare a little bit better in terms of like, if the cow had at least like been like, and like ran out. Now, again, I imagine they probably only had that cow for like a little bit. It like. For like an hour. I, I get the vibe that they must've just like, it would have been one thing if the cow had, like, popped out from a weird, like, spot. Like, if it had actually been surprising. But it just seems like the cow was just vibing. The cow was just chilling. And she just didn't expect to see a cow there. She, like, heals over and faints. And that's when the monster pops out of the water. Is like, right as she's fainting. And later when she wakes up... The cow's gone. Only its bell remains. Only... It was a really big like headpiece for the bell but or like, yeah i think they were implying that that was like a piece of driftwood i don't think that was a piece of driftwood well it wasn't a cow bone I did wasn't... you see the shape of it there's no way the cow had bone shaped like that i didn't say that okay well what do you think it was because it was like it was it some was... sort of harness for the cow Okay, you say harness, I say driftwood. Either way, the cow, the cow, the cow is the cow is dead. <laughs> Monster con carne, the cow is dead. So after that, we get a scene with Pablo and and Tula because here's what the third thing. So like again, the, the the Mexican characters in this movie primarily do three things. They either exposit about the scary monster that the white people will investigate. They get drunk like Pablo, or they start getting into superstition. Specifically, Tula is basically like, well, clearly we need to like start sacrificing to the old gods to get the ocean to stop fucking with us. And, so and only a fair maiden and who else but the American woman. Because as we all know, there's no fair women in Mexico. Like, do they literally oh mean fairest God. like palest or do they mean fairest like fairest in the mall fairy tale log and jig? Because if all you need is a pretty woman, I have it on good authority that Mexico is full of beautiful women and just beautiful people in general. But, but no, it has to be the white gay girl because 50s. 50s. God dang it, 50s. Not again. Yeah, so Italian posing as Mexican granny is telling Chinese posing as Mexican drunk to, <laughs> to, to, to sacrifice the white girl. Oh my gosh. Now, the first way that Pablo tries to do that, because they do go on rule of three. So first attempt is... You know, because he's helping while Steve is, you know, on the different part of the coast. Pablo is helping Julie, like, do some diving. And so, like, the first time he helps her, like, take the boat out for her to do a dive, he cuts his own hand, sticks it in the water to, like, have some blood flow and to hopefully attract, if not the monster, you know, something that'll eat her and, you know, take the sacrifice for the ocean. A shark does come. I'll give her credit that she tries to shank it. I don't think that's actually what you're supposed to do during a shark attack. Except the shark's not attacking her because, like... They're just swimming near by her. her. Well, and you can tell that, like, they didn't want to actually hurt any of the animals upset, which, you know, kudos. Because, like... Right. We're, we're, this is a part... Er, er, this is a time period where, like, you know, there are movies 
made more recently than cats say that. You know, like, as far as I'm aware, because I didn't see anything about any documentation of the animals getting hurt. So that's a good thing. Because it's very clear that even though she's trying to make it look like she's attempting to shank the shark in self-defense, she is deliberately stabbing next to the sharks, but not actually making contact. But that being said, though, more power to her for being like, fuck you, shark. Hell yeah, go Julie. I know, but it's just funny because it's like such a contrast from her being terrified of the octopus and terrified of the cow. (laughs) Wait, so what about the octopus and what about the cow that are so frightening, but not a fucking shark? She can kick a Blaha's ass. (laughs) No, not my Blaha! I'm just saying, as far as I know, Ikea has not made an iconic octopus or cow plush. And you know what's going to happen? We're now going to get Ikea fans. We're going to get the Ikea fandom in the comments saying, actually, if you didn't know, (laughs) in 1996, Ikea released the iconic, the classic Badoogledore for I, I Badoogledore, <laughs> yeah! The, the Badoogledore octopus plushie, renowned by collectors to this day. Oh, that sounds adorable! I mean, if, if you've got any cute IKEA plushies of cow or octopus variety, send us some pictures on social media. Tag us in your pictures of IKEA plushies. If I'm wrong, and there actually are some good octopus and cow plushies, the only one that I was aware of was the Blaha. I would love a Mario style cow yeah but but so then so she's able to fight off the shark she's able to swim back up and you know first sacrifice attempt failed however she is pulling up the grappling hook that was anchoring the boat down and there's a bit of a tug like she's kind of struggling to pull it up and at first i thought they were implying that like the monster down there was eating the grappling hook like it she finally is able to pull it out of the water but we didn't see the end of the rope and so at first i was like okay did it get stuck in it did it swallow it but then come to find because then we do cut to steve and dr baldwin on a different part of the coast and there's a teenager named carlos who you know walks up just to be like hey i got paid to deliver this package to you guys and then and runs off and it's from julie Oh, wait, we forgot something. What did we forget? So before we go back to Dr. Baldwin and Steve, Pablo asks Julie to check on the door, make sure it's locked. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because basically, like, so after that initial, like, my apologies. So, yeah, so after she, you know, like, is able to pull up the grappling hook, but we don't see exactly what happened to it just yet, like, goes back to shore and she's like, oh, hey, you know, Pablo, can you help me out with, like, another diving effort and he's like oh no not right now you know i'm i'm gonna go out on a date or like he contrives an excuse it's like but tell you what it's like i'll load your stuff onto the boat for your next excursion if you go check my back door and to make sure that it's locked and she's like yeah sure and while she's doing that he stabs into her diving equipment or like he releases some air from the tank okay we do know he has a knife though because that knife comes into play later right and that's when she gives up on her diving efforts and she's trying to pull up. I thought it was an anchor, but apparently she was grappling something. And we don't see what it is until we transition to later Steve and Baldwin coming oh, back oh, right. to get oh, the mail. Oh, oh, right. My apologies. Yeah, because like if she tries to hop down to the water, luckily she realizes pretty quickly that there's something wrong with her air and like pops back onto the boat. And that's when the grappling hook thing happens. My apologies. Right. So... They get the package from Julie. So we now have rule of threes. We've now had the second sacrifice attempt. Right. Two out of three. 
So then Carlos, the probably not Mexican teenager, DoorDashes DoorDashes the package. Or if he was in this movie for like 10 seconds, he is like the one person in this movie. Probably not, based on everyone else. But it's so weird because it's California. There's Latin American people in California. It's not like they're filming this in Wyoming. Anywho, though. Also, I almost forgot. So Dr. Baldwin and Steve, because Dr. Baldwin's like, oh, you sure you don't believe Julie about the monster? And Steve's like, no, I'm the skeptic of this movie. And Dr. Baldwin's like, well, actually, one time I was working for an oil company and there was a pteranodon that we saw and found an egg of. And somehow this is not the discovery of the century. Also, he does not call it a pteranodon. Like, he keeps pronouncing it a pterandon. A pterandon! But he's like, oh, you know, like a big reptilian looking thing, but it flies and it lays eggs. And I'm like, okay, it's a pteranodon, right? It's like, it's a big lizard bird. It's like, okay, so you're talking about a pteranodon. Why do you keep calling it pterandon? White people. That's why. I'm pretty sure white people made the term pteranodon. It's like a Latin scientific name. (laughs) But, and so he's basically like, so yeah, I randomly met a dinosaur on an oil expedition and we found a non-fossilized egg. And somehow this is not like redefining, you know, what we consider science in universe, Um, which was just such a weird argument. Like if they wanted to go with the argument that, oh, there's more out there than you may realize, the coelacanth was rediscovered in 1938. I double checked that because I was like, what about the coelacanth? Because that's the thing that like growing up watching like stuff on Discovery Kids related to cryptids, the common like, you know, argument in cryptozoological circles for, you know, like justification that maybe we haven't discovered everything, you know, is that, oh, like we thought that the coelacanth went extinct millions of years ago, but then it was rediscovered in the modern day, specifically 1938 off the coast of South Africa. Please explain what a A coelacanth is. It's basically, it's a fish. It's a, it's a decent sized, like, okay, I don't know the exact dimensions. I'm going to say medium sized. It couldn't swallow a person. I'm sure if it were, I'm going to say it's Blaha sized. (laughs) For lack of a better frame of reference, I'm pretty sure it's Blaha sized, but it's just an old timey looking fish with kind of chonky fins. Apologies to any actual marine biologists listening (laughs) if I'm just absolutely butchering the definition of a coelacanth. But yeah, it's a very old species of fish that we thought went extinct around the same time as the dinosaurs did. Turns out not the case because we rediscovered them in 1938. So if Dr. Baldwin wanted to be clever, he could have been all like, oh, what about the coelacanths? You know, we thought that they were extinct when the dinosaurs did, but then they were discovered just a few decades ago off the coast of South Africa. So maybe the ocean still has surprises left for us, Stevie Beavy. I don't know, like... (laughs) So, so yeah, like, as a former dinosaur kid, I just had to, I just had to ramble a little about the Tarandon. Tarandon. Hashtag justice for (laughs) Tarandon. But so then they get the chunk, they get the door dashed chunk of meat because it turns out that was what was going on with the grappling hook. It's that it caught onto the monster and she was able to yank out a chunk of it that she then put in a jar and had door dashed to Dr. Baldwin and Steve. Which kudos on her for ripping off a part of the monster. Fuck yeah. I'm surprised the monster didn't fight back more. Right. Unless they were going with like lizard logic that it like just detached that part of its limb. Right. Still, I'm still counting that as a win. But so they, they take a look at it under the microscope and then they feed it a little piece of meat and it melts the meat. 
intracellular absorption. They compare it to an amoeba. And I was curious, and so I double-checked, because it's kind of similar to the blob, but this actually predates the blob. The blob was in 1958. I think, you know, the blob is a bit more accurate to the idea of, like, what if it, what if amoeba but giant and eats people? Because by the time we see the monster, it does not look like an amoeba. No. Basically, it looks like an octopus with a giant With a giant eye. eye. Yeah. That's it. But anywho, though, before we get to that part, so they determined to go find Julie because they're like, oh no, her monster she's looking for is actually real. Yeah, and they're like, oh shit, that's why that that's why Sanchez, we couldn't find his body because he basically just got melted and then like absorbed like into sucked out through the face hole. Metal. Bones and all. <laughs> There's an alternate universe where this this is the thing that got the the high budget '80s remake with the awesome gore effects instead of the blob. Oh god! I, I'm very curious how that would turn out because underwater, god, that'd probably be a bitch trying to do those gore effects underwater. I'd be curious oh to see what that would god. look like. It we all know it would be CGI. Well, nowadays it'd be CGI, but I was saying in the alternate universe where in because okay because in the '80s we had like at least three movies in a row that were. 1950s that were like high budget remakes of 1950s B movies but since it was the 80s it was mostly practical effects we had the fly we had the blob and we had the thing so that's what I'm saying I'm not saying nowadays because yeah you're right nowadays it would be CGI and it'd be bad but back then because I'm just saying there's an alternate universe where a, a different trio of 1950s B movies got high budget gorgeous practical effects remakes this actually could have it could have worked yeah, it's like, you, you'd you have to obviously, like, retool the racial stuff. Like, you could still have it set in Mexico, but, you know, like, maybe actually have make Latin... It a, make it a little less racist! Yeah, like, maybe actually have Latinx actors playing Latinx characters. Maybe let's have them not all just be, like, superstitious, like... Drunks? Yeah, like, yeah. Or drunks? Yeah, let's have them not all be drunk or so superstitious they're willing to commit manslaughter. <laughs> but yeah, make it less racist. Update the effects. Give flesh out everybody like obviously you'd have to now make it to feature length rather than an hour long use that time to make the romance seem less instant less just thrown in there just because add, add salt water for instant romance <laughs> But going back to the movie that we actually do have, so they're like, oh crap, we need to find Julie before she gets eaten by the sea amoeba. Sea amoeba. <laughs> and so she's now going out on the boat again by herself with Pablo. And so rule of three, this is the third time he's going to try to sacrifice her. This time he's on the verge of shanking her himself with his, with his little knife. And she's like turned around just messing with the scuba equipment and he can't bring himself to do it. It's very... It reminded me a lot of the Disney version of the Huntsman in terms of just like, you know, that whole, oh, she doesn't even realize it's about to happen. He's going to do it. And then he's all like, nope, I can't. And she is remarkably forgiving because she's just like, so are you the one that messed with my breathing equipment? Yeah, I'm supposed to sacrifice you to the ocean, but I can't do it. I wouldn't hurt you, even though I've tried two other times. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I guess Julie doesn't believe in cancel culture, so she's just like, okay, well, you stay on the boat and I'm going to go down into the ocean and hope you don't try anything else. So in the meantime, Steve has to unclog the propeller on his boat yeah, in order because to he, get it 
going again. He, he has to basically like weed whack it because like some extra seaweed and kelp got stuck in it because we needed to contrive like a reason why they can't get there immediately. So they finally get there and Julie finally finds the monster and oh this monster is so cute. So the way that they did it was that it was a puppet that they filmed from behind a murky fish tank. Oh, that is awesome. It, it is very, it I is very it charming. I actually thought for two seconds, but then I was like, no, I'm being silly. I was about to say, they would, have not, right. they would not have been able to film it in six days if it was stop motion. <laughs> and she has her knife in her hand, but like, I can't tell if they were implying that either she like hyperventilated so badly that she ran out of air from freaking out on seeing the monster, or if it's just like the cow and she fainted again. Oh, God. But Steve comes onto the scene and his solution is to crash the sub into the eye of the monster. Which somehow works even though it's not very sharp. <laughs> and I guess it's video game logics. The big glowing eyeball is the weak point. <laughs> Oh my gosh. And because the submersible, like, I guess that's the one upside of it, like, still being kind of, like, half soggy in that he's able to pop out of the submersible after ramming the monster, grabbing Julie, bringing her up to shore, and they're, she's able to come too. I'd like to point out, so now on the boat, it's her, Steve, Pablo, who is his redemptive act other than, you know, choosing not to kill her is that he gives her a pot of coffee, or at least I hope it's coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't know if any uh, if his boost stash would be the right medicine in that moment. I was about to say she just drowned, and what do you give her? You give her liquids. I mean, I guess the idea was that like to warm her up because the ocean's cold. Maybe. Maybe. Or maybe to help wake her up, like the cafe. I'm not sure. The point is, they like get the equipment off of her. They like you know they hold her upright. Like she has like they do. They it seems like she doesn't have any water in her lungs. It was just that she was passing out. So yeah. she's back up in fresh air. She's got some coffee in her, and and like finally you know she, now that she's gained consciousness, Steve's like, well, I guess you were right. And she's like, yep, I was right. But doesn't matter as much now because we defeated the monster. Hooray! Yay! Yay! And I get. I just realized that the movie was bookended by Roger Corman, but I bet you didn't realize that he was even in there, did you? No. Who was he? He was the very prominent character, Tommy. Who was that? <laughs> exactly. Um. So when she first meets Doctor Baldwin on the boat, and Steve's like, "Oh, and you know, this is my colleague, Doctor Baldwin, and here's our one-man crew, Terry." And then Terry's just like, "Hi, ma'am. Would you like a towel?" Terry or Tommy? Tommy. There's a lot. <laughs> I'm making sure that I'm not accidentally learning about another character that I overlooked. No, it's Tommy. Yeah. A lot of white people names. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, so though that was Roger Corman as Tommy. And then he disappears for the rest of the movie until the very end when he's kind of also there among the posse of men kind of like recuperating Julie after her harrowing adventure under the water. Can't say I clocked him though. No, no. I mean, the next time, this will not be the last time that he pops up in one of his own films or that he pops up in films that other people have made, such as, you know, some of his protégés that went on to bigger things. Ooh. So now is time once again to see where this film lies on the trash spectrum. Because remember, trash is on a spectrum, not a binary. So if it's so bad that it's bad, it's bad trash. If it's so bad that it's good, it's good trash. If it's so good that it's fine, it's non-trash. And if it's so good that it's great, it's anti-trash. Now, 
The proverbial dumpster diamond. The spicy dumpster diamond. I would say, and again, I'm being very charitable. One, because, you know, like, I have to be more sympathetic to, you know, more slapdash productions. Again, for what they were managed to do in six days, you know... I would have, except for the racism. They could have done six days without racism, but unfortunately, this is the fifties. Super common. Unfortunately, back then. yeah, it's like it's it's like you can't shake a dead dog in the fifties without hitting some racism. Oh boy! Oh racism! But it's definitely very campy, and I, it's like I guess the way that I would divide like bad trash and good trash is: would I be willing to watch this again? If I really hated something and did not have any enjoyment, ironic or otherwise, I wouldn't want to watch it. But I can see myself watching this again. I can see myself watching it again too, with a dry martini or some tequila <laughs> or some margaritas. But yeah, so I I'd say that this was this was good trash. Good trash. I'm not. I don't want to be too willy nilly with slapping things as bad trash because again, I know there's much worse in our future. Oh god, you know more about that than I do. I just have a vague sense of once we get past the 50s and 60s and we got gets start getting into the 70s and 80s where, you know, censorship is laxed, which is good. The only downside of it is that means we're going to start getting into the stuff that's more veers more towards sexploitation, like oh, when we're going to get to the point god. where it's just a lot of pointless boobage. That that I think I'm going to be more frustrated by because at least when there's rubber monsters, there's something to be enjoyed. But if we start getting into stuff where it's less rubber monsters and more random naked women, that's when I'm gonna have to start, like, implementing bad trash. I have nothing against nudity, you know, like, if it serves a purpose. If it's done well. Yeah, and most anything in art can be done well. Nudity and sex among them. But I'm just saying that for as much as the 50s movies have their own problematic elements, they aren't able to be as problematic about sex yet, but that's only because they can't show it. So... You know, it's a give or take. These we're it's gonna be very interesting as we go decade by decade how the flavor, the Corman flavor is going to shift over time. Ooh, we're gonna see it. And episode by episode. Exactly. So as far as this movie was concerned, so you know, like like I said, filmed over six days. And as far as a distributor was concerned, they're they did get an offer from a distributor called Real Art. Unfortunately, Real Art wasn't going to offer in advance. And Roger Corman describes this as being the trap in low budget production. Once again, to quote Roger Corman, you're out of business for a year unless you have another source of income. Luckily, he didn't have to worry about that for this go around because his brother, Gene Corman, who had actually gotten into the film industry before Roger as an agent, he happened to know Bob Lippert of the Lippert Releasing Company. And so the Lippert Re- Releasing Company offered Roger Corman a distribution deal where they would get it a $60,000 advance. And so Roger took up their offer. And so that way he was able to pay back everyone that was owed and start work on another movie already. And I'll tell you all about it when I see you again. You have no idea, do you? I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, you're gonna find out. So guys, tune in next time when we cover The Fast and the Furious on the common catacombs. Oh my god, what? Bye! Bye! The 
Corman Catacombs is a production by Sabrina Stan and Robin Troy. Our podcast art and spooky tunes are by our good friend Elias. You can check out his artwork on Instagram at Don't Mind If I Doodle and Twitter at Don't Mind If I Do Too. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Corman Catacombs. Be sure to subscribe and stay tuned as we journey further into the depths. Be sure to rate and review us. If you give us a five-star review, we may even read it on a future episode of the podcast. And be sure to follow our social medias. You can find us on Tumblr, Twitter, and Instagram at Corman Catacombs. If you would like to support us, you can make a one-time donation on our Ko-fi, or you can share this podcast with a friend. And just be sure not to stray too far, or you'll be lost in the catacombs forever.